evening. Hello, all. Welcome Thursday night. No. <laughs> did you sleep till Thursday? Maybe you think you did. Sorry. Wednesday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter, and I am definitely not thinking it's You Thursday. know what happened? This is what happened. So today was a very unusual Wednesday for me. I had two back-to-back appointments, which is normally more of my Thursday situation. And so mm. it was – and I had a pickup at the – and Graham's pickup today was – at um, five as it normally is on Thursday. So today, I'm sorry, it is Wednesday. I do know this in theory. Yes, well, <laughs> we're gonna be talking about jobs, small small business America, but let's not forget that being a parent is a full-time job. And it's exasperating. A lot of different it's exasperating. I can't, I, I- Chris, great to see you, thank I you. I so don't like teenagers. Button. I do not, I do not like teenagers. Some I didn't just like don't teenagers. Like kids altogether. All right, well, you know what though? Some kids I can deal with. Teenagers, they, they know everything, but yet their brains aren't fully developed. It's this very horrible combination. I didn't like teenagers when I was a teenager. I remember then thinking that we were idiots. Who's to say that? But, but I didn't you? like it with child number one. I'm not particularly liking it with child number two. And uh, let's just say that it's like sometimes I feel like it's all I could do to like white knuckle it. It's well, we all exasperating. Well, well, you're gonna own, well, you're gonna own nothing and like it. So that's that's gonna be the topic of conversation. Okay. Well, that's how I feel. So that works. We are pleased to welcome back friend of the show, uh, somebody who is from a part of the country that you know very well, Chicago, sitting at broad shoulders, as they say. And a, I have never heard that in my life. Never heard that expression. No. no. What is that from? Uh, that's an expression used to describe. Um, and I live there. You do know this. Well, I think that it's, I think that the the the, the um, that term was coined during um, post eighteen ninety four. Okay. Fire. Sometimes I think you were like reincarnated from an era that is just, and you <laughs> say things that are so old. Well, I'm not that old. No, you're not old. You say things that are old. Well, no, Chicago, as you know, the city burnt down in 1894. Yes, I know. Mr. O'Leary's cow. And so the building up of the city again, the city of broad shoulders, you know. No. I'm just, I'm just saying. No. Well, we are pleased to welcome back a friend of the show, somebody who knows a thing or two about the complete economic disaster. And remember, we're equal opportunists on the show. If one president or one administration is doing bad, we call it out. Same is true for the ones that are in there right now. And my God, is it bad. So you will own nothing and be happy. Carol Roth, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, guys. So nice to see you. And I have to say it's called the city of broad shoulders because of my outfits during the 80s. I had the big shoulder and the big hair. And so I sort of carried everything around with me. You I, know, I, you I and I, they're same age. I was class of 88. No, Where were you? No, no. Yeah, yeah class of 88. Seriously? I thought you were Yeah. I, I thought you were like 32. I love you. <laughs> I love you. No, are you, I, Peter, are you guys like both? Do you like, you know, drink kids' blood or like what do you guys do to oh, make I'm, I'm, Well, no, his, his. I'm 40 and, and everyone's like, you look like I'm 20. Yeah, his, I'll tell you what it is with What's him. What's happening here? I can tell you what his thing is. His thing is he doesn't have children. Well, People I don't have children don't, either. <laughs> and you look fabulous. I honestly, that is a thing. And for me, honestly, it's a couple of things. It's hereditary. And, you know, it's just lifestyle choice. You know, wow. but it's hereditary. Wow. No, I'm 52. Holy smokes, girl. 
package what you're doing. I'm a capitalist. Let's package what you're doing and put it out into the universe so everybody can look as amazing as you Thank do. you. Holy I say, I say uh, Pilates and cannabis is, is really my thing. Good living. Good clean living. <laughs> Love so it. when you when you were on about a year ago, obviously we talked about the war on small business, and that war continues to this day. Uh, I had mentioned that I am a small business owner, and my business, unfortunately, uh, was the victim in many instances of dealing with big business and monopolization, and not being able to keep a foothold for all the different yeah. rules and things you got to deal with. But now we're living in a very tumultuous time, where you know you could say what you want about what percentage is actually inflation based on overprinting of money. But I think more of that has to do with our corporate greed problem that we have in this country. But people can, especially those that are in millennial and Gen Z territory, they very likely are not going to own a house. At least a significant portion of them are never going to do that. And there are many reasons that are debated constantly between the left, right and middle as to why that is. But you chose to write a book about this economic doom, which is very, very serious. Now, my thought process was, and uh, hopefully you'll agree, um, I like the part of the synopsis that you sent us that deals with the 38 surprising facts and controversial insights from You Will Own Nothing. I think there's about probably like five to 10 of them that really stand out. And I think we can hit on those if that works for you. Listen, I'm here for you and your audience. And one of the things about this book is that it does cover so much information. And so we can have a completely different interview that's customized towards your audience versus one that I'm going to have for you know somebody else. And it leaves other things for people to discover when they hopefully buy the book and at least own a copy of the book. That's that's what the takeaway is that at minimum, you will own a hard copy. Of you will own a hard copy. But, and but, no, I do want to say that this, though, the, this is, and we'll get into, I'm sure, the kind of the reason why it's called this and the, the reasoning behind it. But this is meant to be a book of optimism, of empowering people with knowledge and hoping that people fight back. Because, you know, the, I think the goal for you guys, as well as the goal for me, is to make sure that people own everything possible um, and that have the opportunity to seize that American dream. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we come at things a different way, but I think at where you, the two of you and I sort of have that commonality is we do want to see people succeed. And so, you know, I yeah. think we can take it from that perspective. Yeah, and this is actually a very interesting timing because um, in the last uh, four months, I made a huge uh, career decision. I am in commercial real estate now. Wow. And dealing with um, different types of individuals on a day-to-day -day basis. First of all, uh, you want to talk about the wild, wild west. Of course, I do this in Florida. Um, the the kill or be killed attitude in commercial real estate is very real. And, you know, knowing uh, what that's like and how hard it is to survive. I mean, we deal in an industry where the listing agents do not feel it's necessary to compensate buyer agents. Like that's that's the attitude It's like, yeah, you're not really worthy of any anything like you want to talk about. You will own nothing and be and yeah. be happy. Uh, that is. Uh, but but I think that's. Uh, a microcosm of the entire system of what it has become. You know, we advocate constantly for small businesses here, but obviously we are on the populist left side of economics. So there are places that we will disagree. But I think a great place to start 
is something that has become a very interesting topic of conversation that I don't think either Jen and I are totally familiar with. And that's right off the bat. Number four, social credit is tied directly to limiting your wealth. So could you please explain to the audience what this new concept of social credit is? It sounds like something right out of 1984. But of course, I would love for you to explain exactly what that means and how that's tied in with any type of ownership. Sure. So there's sort of the concept of social credit in an informal state and social credit in a formalized state. And in an informal state, we've seen it with cancel culture. And we've seen it, obviously, you know, during COVID, people who didn't follow sort of the prescribed narratives were, you know, shunned from society. They were told they were not essential. If you didn't take the vaccine, you could actually lose your job, your business. In some cases, you know, a third of the businesses were shut down. Um, So there is this kind of element of just in the day-to-day, and then you can also just think of the personalities, the Joe Rogans, the Dave Chappelle's, Ellen DeGeneres, and obviously a lot of people show up on video doing something that people don't like, often to be found out later, oh, by the way, the video didn't tell the whole story, that people go after them. And when they're going after them, whether it's to silence them or to punish them, the financial realm is really important to that because- If you are not on sort of the the right side of social credit or the the right thing, whatever you want to call it, it's going to go after your social standing. And your social standing creates opportunities for you to get jobs and, and to create wealth. Sometimes it goes after your actual job as we've seen, which is obviously your wealth. And in the cases of our businesses being shut down or the the Freedom Convoy truckers in Canada, sometimes it actually goes after your wealth and and freezes it. So we've seen this in a very informal way, um, although obviously, you know, the government has been found to be colluding more with some of these entities. We saw the Twitter files. We saw some of the suppression of this person is aligned with the narrative and this person is not. And it takes us to a formalized social credit system, which is something that is happening right now in China. And I know it may sound like, oh, Carol, this isn't China. We don't live in a communist arena. We would never be like China. And like five or 10 years ago, I'd say, yeah, you know, you're probably right. But some of the things that have happened over the last, you know, three to three plus years makes it kind of hard to say that. So in social with social credit in China, they have actually very much formalized this. And to formalize this, there's only two things you really need. One is technology to be able to do this at scale, which obviously the technology is robust now. And two is the buy in of the people. And we saw during COVID how willing people were to turn on neighbors, family members, anyone they didn't like on the internet, whatever, to jump in to protect their narrative. So we have kind of the makings of this. In China, it's a little scary. It's not as pronounced as some people say it is, that people have sort of the information wrong. So it's more of a regional system than it is like one big system top down. But all of the or many of them have grades so some of them use a letter grading system. Some of them use a number grading system. And it's all to push whatever that particular jurisdiction thinks is important. And it's not just like normal things that you would think of, like abiding by the law. It's stuff like you can get good points, you know, good social credit for giving blood or going to visit your parents 
you can get negative social credit for taking up too much room in an airplane, which I think is really annoying, but the government shouldn't give you bad social credit for That's, that. This uh, is like a black, this literally is a black mirror episode. There was literally a black mirror episode about this whole concept and it's extremely creepy. And I actually don't necessarily mind it when it's in the positive direction. It's the problem of it when it's in the negative direction, because it's like, you know, it's your airline, for example, gives you bonus points, right? They can't say, oh, we didn't like your attitude today. We're taking points (laughs) away from you. you, But it's also different, right? It's different if it's the airline doing it and you have some, maybe some choices between airlines and the government who has, you know, a military and a jail system and a legal system doing it. But it's not not weird that you mentioned Jen, the, the Black Mirror thing. So go back to like 1984. There's a story. And one of the things that's important in my book is I take the conspiracy out of all these things we're talking about. Everything is really well sourced. So there's a story from NPR and they go visit this guy. His name is Lao Juan. And he was in the coal trade business. He was basically an intermediary. And the Chinese government completely changed their tenor on coal. And he was stuck like completely imploded him financially because of the government. One day couldn't pay his debts. So he goes on the blacklist. He can't fly. He can't travel. He goes into town and he looks up and there's a billboard with his picture on it and his identifying number. And it says, this is an untrustworthy person. And then it cycles through all these people. And he's like, yeah, I recognize a lot of people from the coal industry based on what happens. But you know, like you said, it sounds like well, but the reality is, you know, go over to Twitter, see a video of somebody doing something that, you know, people find horrible and they're calling their employer and they're, they're doing the same kinds of things. So we're kind of like this far away from it and something that we may or may not get to talk to about um, a central bank digital currency could be tied in with this system in terms of compliance. So I think it's one of the things that's very important because in terms of, as I said, again, your ability to have opportunities and create wealth or your assets, these all become more and more at risk the more that social credit becomes formalized and we let a handful of people decide, you know, what are the things that we're going to incentivize and what are the things we're going to disincentivize and we're going to tie your financial future to it. It's really horrifying. Yeah, it sounds very similar. And we're speaking with Carol Roth, author of You Will Own Nothing and Like It. Uh, one of the <laughs> You more- will not like it. You will not like it. It's how you I- fight back. <laughs> one of the things that I found very interesting, if you remember, I guess it's probably about 15, 16 years ago, maybe even a little longer. Uh, it could be almost 20 years ago when Tom Cruise pulled that stunt on the Oprah Winfrey show. And everyone really at that point started questioning, what is this church of Scientology and what exactly do they mean by being a suppressive person? And so at that time, the general consensus was, man, this is crazy. Well, you're 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 trying to basically blacklist people very much like 1984. And yet you come full circle today. And it seems like that is the order of the day. Um, May I still say I do think they're crazy? Well, yes, I, I don't disagree. And that's neither here nor there. I think we experienced that a lot. Uh, during the course of COVID, right. but I only think COVID just made it that much more obvious. Yes. And one thing that I always like to say, and I think we're in agreement on this in general, is that 
I'm very much on the economic left. I am not on the, you know, social justice left, if you will, from the standpoint of everybody's a bad person if they do not agree with this, that, and the other thing. Um, You have to accept that there are different segments of the United States of America. There is a huge difference between Chicago, Illinois and Springfield, Illinois. And that would be the simplest example that I can give. And the same is true for just about anywhere else you would go. Unfortunately, the social credit is something that seems like a lot of things in the liberal, the neoliberal world that we live in, that what goes in New York and D.C. and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago is that that's that's the law, that you have to obey these laws in terms of social benevolence. And if you do not, then we will see to it that you're either eliminated or we will basically say that you're not even worthy of support, kind of like what happened in East Palestine, where everyone's like, oh, well, this is Trump country, so to hell with those people. Right. No, it's a, yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I want to share with you, actually, um, another story from the book, uh, sort of a little, little vignette, because I think it's important for people to realize that a lot of these things sound good at their core. And so, like, you may say, well, you know, of course it would make sense to have social credit about this thing, but it can so easily be distorted. So we talked Black Mirror, we talked um, 1984, we're going to talk about the Twilight Zone now. So there is a vintage Twilight Zone episode. And in the episode, you have these aliens who come down to Earth. And the people of Earth, of course, are a little bit skeptical, like, why are you here? And they said, well, we see that you have wars and we see that you have famines and we have created this technology and we just want to help you guys. We, we, you know, we figured we would just help you because what you have going on here is horrible. And of course, they're all skeptical. So they go and they do a, a lie detector test and the alien passes the lie detector. Meanwhile, he's left behind a book and the like kind of CIA-ish people are decoding the book. And they come up, they're only able to crack the title. And the title is To Serve Man. And they said, well, To Serve Man seems like a noble concept. And it seems consistent with what the alien is saying. And I think we should trust the alien. So everyone's, okay, this is great. And they start signing up and going on trips to the alien's land. They get in spaceship. And then, you know, one of the heads of the, the CIA kind of bureau is getting on the spaceship. And his employee comes running out. And as he's boarding, she's like, I decoded the rest of the book to serve man is a cookbook. And I want people to take that away because what sounds like a noble intention often is wrapped up in something else. So to serve man, you guys can also be a cookbook and you have to keep that in mind. Not everybody has the best intentions, even when something sounds great at the surface. All right. This is a very interesting point. Number seven, every war doesn't bring about a new financial world order, but every new financial world order has been preceded by a war. So you're going to hear a lot about new world order, a new financial world order, and it's one of the things that's sort of a key centerpiece of the book and the you will know nothing thesis. And first of all, that sounds in itself like a conspiracy theory. But I promise you, if you go to the White House website right now and you look up Joe Biden's remarks to the business roundtable, which is all the big company CEOs in the U.S., March 21st of 2022, he goes in and he says, 
you know, there's going to be a changing of the global economic order out there. You know, that's not just the economy, the world. It happens every three or four generations. There's going to be a new world order and we have to lead it. And many, many people have said this because the reality is we have been in the pole position of the global financial economy in the U.S. for about 80 years. Um, we're getting a little long in the tooth. We're getting to the point where our debts are a little bit crazy. This happens regularly. Before us, it was the British. Before the British, it was the Dutch. And I'm sure if you had asked somebody who was a, a, a British citizen at the time that they were at the center of the financial universe, they'd go, are you crazy? There's no chance that you know we're going to ever be not you know in the center of the universe. This is how it's going. And we've lived through that. And so it's kind of hard to see. But the reality is these things shift. And going to what you mentioned, Peter, when we have these changes, these major changes in who is, you know, that that you know kind of anchor for the global financial economy, and particularly with the world reserve currency, it is always the change has always been preceded by war. That has been the catalyst for different nations to come together and to hammer out an agreement. And usually it's, you know, some entity has risen to power and it's pretty obvious who it's going to be. Um, you know, with the Dutch, it was the case. It, with British, it was Brit Britain or France and the British kind of won out. We were waiting in the wings to then step into that position. It's a little hard to imagine right now because anybody who's waiting in the wings isn't like this great bastion of opportunity and freedom and wealth creation. They're tyrannical and, you know, even worse than what we have going on here. But I do think it's something that we need to be watching out for, um, whether it's Iran and Israel, whether it's China and Taiwan. You know, there are a lot of you know tensions going on. Obviously, there's a situation going on in Ukraine right now, but doesn't seem like that's the big enough catalyst. But maybe it's a tipping point into something else. But there usually is a major shift that then says, okay, you know, we're in a different position. And why you should care as somebody in the U.S is that it has created a situation where our country has been able and, and our citizens have been able to borrow very cheaply and invest at higher rates elsewhere, particularly around the globe. Um, the U.S. government has been able to expand it with a very low cost of capital. This changes everything, and it's going to make our lives more expensive. It potentially could threaten military alliances because no longer is this dollar this thing that you can weaponize anymore around the globe, which is something that happened uh, with Russia last year and, and the United States and the Biden administration. It means that you might not be able to get critical things that you need for your lives, medicines or components that go into things. I mean, this is stuff that really fundamentally changes the workings. And so I thought that was a, an interesting takeaway as we're kind of looking for signposts because this can take a long time. And even when a new financial world order comes to bear, the, there's chaos in that process. <laughs> When Britain and U.S. kind of had that changing, it took 15 years for that to kind of get settled out. But it's something of a signpost for people to be thinking about and also personally thinking about how you're going to manage through that situation and what changes you might want to make from a financial or behavioral standpoint to preserve whatever it is that you have created in wealth or wealth that you're going to create in the future. I think a very important point, um, you know, we are very friendly with the MMT community. Um, I think there's a lot of things that they get right. I think there's some things that they get wrong. 
but one thing that cannot be disputed is that a lot has changed in the financial global economy since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Uh, at that time, um, and I am somebody who is a student of history, and I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that Woodrow Wilson is one of the worst presidents we've ever had. <laughs> um, and that has nothing to do, and that, and, and, and at the level of where people would point to the fact that the first film that was ever screened at the White House was Birth of a Nation, yeah, that really sucks, but on the grand scheme of things, that's very low on the totem pole compared to things that he's done. So at the time of the creation of the Fed, the dollar was at a valuation that, according to your studies, is 97% weaker today than it was than when it was created. Now, what are you basing that on as we get to this point today? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's not weaker, it's, de it's debased. And let me explain debasement in the way that sort of a person who maybe doesn't have an economic background can understand. So we're going to go, and we're going to go, we talked a little bit about the British financial empire and the Dutch. We're going to go all the way back to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, which I think is very analogous, maybe Peter, Peter's the student of history, so he could probably vouch better than, than any of us could. More but U.S. history. No, I mean, listen, if the Roman Empire can fall, if Genghis Khan They were fall, around a lot longer than we will be before we fall. That's what I think. <laughs> probably. Yes. Okay. So basically, so they understood that stable money led to a stable society. And for about 300 years, they kept their money very stable. And they had a, a bunch of different coins. And instead of having like the fiat currency, they had the value of their coins actually made up in the coin. So they had a coin right. like this. It was called the denarius. It was a silver coin. And when they came out with it, it was 95% silver. Okay, so we can all understand this. This is 95% right. silver. So 300 years, everything's great. And then Emperor Nero comes around. Right. And he's like, oh, I, I got this under control. So he's going to go, give me your coins and I'm going to give you back new ones. So people will give their 95% silver coins. And what he would do is he would either siphon off a percentage of that silver and give you back a smaller coin, or he would replace it with some sort of a metal alloy. He'd keep the silver for himself to for his spending and for his military spending in particular. And then you would get something back that was no longer 90 95% silver, it was 92, and then it was 87, and then it was 88. So right. your, your currency is literally worth less and less. Then this happened from emperor to emperor after, until the point that Denarius had 0.5% silver. So you went from something that had was worth 95% to 0.5%. Right. And that's the same thing that the Federal Reserve, in conjunction with the government, has been doing with your dollar. That instead of your dollar measuring something and, and having a fixed value, it sort of has a decreasing value over time. And that's because, you know, dollars aren't just these made up things. <laughs> they're Well, they are, <laughs> but they're, they are now. They're supposed to be a proxy for productivity especially in a fiat currency system. They're supposed to be that unit of account. They're supposed to be fixed because if we tried to tell time and there was 60 minutes an hour one day and 45 in an hour the next, it would be really hard to do that. So they yeah. screwed that up. It's supposed to be a medium of exchange. But again, I give you this dollar and then you go a couple years later to use that dollar to buy something else and you can't buy the same thing and a store of value. And they have completely <laughs> screwed that up over time by printing more money to do things like, you know, finance 
extra spending and all the COVID nonsense that we saw over the last couple of years and expand the government and do these things in a way that was not tied to your productivity. And the way we saw this most recently that I think everyone can appreciate was with the stimulus checks. When the stimulus checks came out and everybody, and by the way, this was under both presidents, you wanted your Donnie dollars or your Biden bucks. It right. doesn't matter, you know, which president. I like a little play on words there. I have to say that's pretty good. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, you got your thousand or your $1,200. And if you listen to people like me, we went, no, 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 don't do that. Because that thousand dollars you get today, you're going to end up spending $6,000 a year for the rest of your life because of the inflation that it's going to cause. And that's because, again, there was no increase in productivity for that amount of direct stimulus. And that's what ended up happening. And now we've had this, this crazy rampant inflation. And I think that that sometimes people are like, well, Carol, you know, it's weird because they've been printing money and doing these other things before. Why wasn't there inflation before? And the reason is there was inflation before, but we count asset inflation differently than we consider a spending inflation because asset inflation benefits the wealthy and well-connected and spending inflation doesn't. But it, we know that when that happens, it hurts the middle and working class. And so we had during this period of like crazy Fed policy over the last 15 years, assets just exploding in value. But again, it wasn't it like a real value. It was because of the inflated money. There was no extra demand or anything that was pushing it up. It was just more dollars chasing these assets. So home prices went up and 401ks went up. And if you are already wealthy and well-connected, you freaking love that. But if you're a saver, if you're a retiree, if you're a millennial just starting out, like that's completely not fair. And the Fed and the government, by doing this, have transferred trillions of dollars of wealth from Main Street, from the average American to Wall Street and the well-connected. And it's so critical that people understand that because as we talk about these things that sometimes get blamed in other areas, this is like the, the other things people talk about as drivers are like peanuts. This is the most historic multi-trillion dollar transfer of wealth that has ever occurred in history period. And it was done based on monetary and fiscal policy. And so it's important, you know, as we move forward, we try to write the ship for people to understand these things, which by the way, are real complicated and opaque on purpose, because they don't want you to understand it. They want you to be focused on something else. But this is really a core piece of how you've been screwed over. And if you go and you look at the connections between the Fed chairs and the Treasury the people who are in charge of the treasury, these are all elite people who go to the oh. same schools, who are connected to the same Wall Street firms, who get jobs in these areas and yeah. then come back and go back to the same schools and go back to the same Wall Street firms and are rewarded handsomely. And so this this is something that you know everybody needs to understand because if you want to own things, we have to turn this around. Yeah, I, it's it's funny because, you know, tomorrow night we're doing um, our we have our Gen Z report and it's the Gen Z kids. I'm not on it. And they talk about it. And the episode tomorrow is about Gen Z and employment and the stuff that they're dealing with and even being able to earn a living. Yeah. The concept of buying things is for most of these kids. 
they don't, most of them envision being other than renters. You know, like, I don't think that that's something that it, it's, uh, how are you even going to be able to afford rent? Yeah. It's, one, it's of the, one of the big misfires, I mean, listen, uh, I love Bernie and I always will because I think he brought the populist left voice in, in areas that desperately were needed, especially on healthcare and especially on economics. But where I thought he really missed big time was when it came to arguing for tuition-free public college. Not that I'm not for that, but he really needed to be leading with tuition-free trade schools, the ability to learn a craft and to be able to be your own boss, if you will. Uh, I think that so many people in today's economy are very much reliant on an hourly wage that very often is putrid. This is intentional. They want us to be cogs. If you don't, that's the truth. They want cogs. Yeah, and if we're not just spinning the wheel on behalf of corporate rich elites, um, there has to be a way to bridge this divide, you know, because all too often we get marred down in the issues of, you know, again, you know that you know the ones LGBTQ, abortion, all those things. If we're not talking about why you can't afford to put food on the table, then it is a distraction. Doesn't mean it's not important, but in the grand scheme of things, it is being put at the forefront so that you don't actually deal with the realities of who's screwing you. Exactly. I am grateful that over the course of the COVID nightmare, that there were many videos that were put out about sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by Pfizer. And enough people, I think, are starting to understand that when we argue for universal health care, we're not arguing for the government to take over health care. We're arguing to get rid of the for profit middlemen like Pfizer that are in between us and our doctors. And there are a lot of people who are getting that now. I do think that that's a significant step in the right direction. But there is something that you do mention uh, that even I'm not familiar with, and you touch upon it multiple times here. So what is CBDC and what is ESG? Oh, Lord. Like, I feel like this is a Sesame Street episode. Okay, boys hey, and girls. Everybody hey, hello. Today right? we're going to talk about... Okay, so I'm going to start with CBDC because I actually think it's just slightly more frightening. They're both pretty frightening. Um, CBDC is a central bank digital currency, okay. and we've been talking about yeah, we, we, we've been talking about the Federal Reserve and all of the awful things they've done, and how they've been a huge enabler of the wealth transfer away from the younger generations and the average Americans to the wealthy and well-connected. Well, wouldn't you like to give them more control over your money? Yes, Absolutely. I would. <laughs> Boys and girls. Okay. So basically what they're trying to do, cryptocurrency has come to the forefront and people have become very interested in it exactly because of these fiat currency issues. They do not trust these central banks. They do not trust the governments as stewards of the capital. We talked about the debasement that's happened. So why would we let them continue being in charge? We'll just come over and we'll have something that theoretically, I'm not going to get into the merits of it, but we'll just go with the macro argument, but theoretically isn't controlled or manipulable by anyone. And it's going to be kind of this, this free market exchange of the people and you know, things like Bitcoin, uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, that's why people are interested in it. So the governments go, oh, that's a problem. 
if people start going and having their own currency and means to trade, that means that we don't have the power, we can't affect the transfers, we can't weaponize that on a world stage, like we can't have that. So we're going to do something that's going to you kind of borrow elements of that to confuse the living you know what out of people, but to get us more power. And that's what a CBDC is. It's basically a digital form factor of you know, whatever currency that central bank is producing on behalf of the government. In our case, it would be a digital dollar. But it's not crypto. It's not decentralized. It's right. entirely centralized with the Fed and the government. Yeah. So again, I'm going to use an example. So let's say we're, we're out shopping. Jen and I, we're going to go get some shoes. Peter, I don't know what... What do you want to get a burger or something like that? New pair of sneakers. Okay, so we're all going to do that, and uh, and we've got our money. And imagine that it had a microchip in it. And then when we went to pay, it said, "Peter, I'm sorry, you can't buy sneakers. The sneakers are leather. They come from cows. It's bad for the environment. You already have a pair of sneakers that you bought three years ago, so we're just going to turn that off." Then we try to go get a burger. Same thing happens. I try to buy anything and they go, Carol, you've got a big mouth on social media. Forget it. That's the level of control they can have because they can track every single quote unquote dollar that you have, have full transparency and then take liberties. And again, 10 years ago, we might have all go, oh, well, you know, that's not constitutional. They're never going to do that. That's been thrown out the window. I think we can all agree with that. So now you're giving the Fed and the government power. And what's going to happen? They're going to go, oh, hey, you know, there's inflation. We can control inflation. We've got central bank digital currency. If you buy into our currency, we'll control inflation. You know how they control inflation? They turn off your ability to buy things. They literally just shut it down. If you can't spend, inflation goes down. Or they're going to promise UBI. And they're going to say, hey, if you sign up for this, We'll give you a universal basic income, or they're going to do what they did during COVID. They're going to do, uh, you know, that stimulus kind of thing. Hey, Peter and Jen, I'll give you ten digital dollars for every dollar you turn in, and somebody along the way, not you two, because we've spent enough time together, but somebody else is going to go ten dollars. That's amazing. Oh wait, you you can make me a millionaire? Okay, great. Not understanding the things that we've been talking about and how that just basically cuts down the purchasing price. And so they're going to try to sneak in this way to get people to buy into the system so that they can get more control. This will be the absolute death of any freedom, any agency, any economic opportunity, any wealth creation. It, it It is the implications are so frightening. And this is something that is not, again, not a conspiracy theory. The New York Fed tested this with 12 major financial services companies. The G7 put out principles around retail facing central bank digital currencies. Like these are not the kinds of things that you do if it's not something that's in serious consideration. Now, I will say in China, they've done this. Um, they had a bunch of people open up wallets. There's like the equivalent of on average 50 cents or something in each one of them. And the commentators over there have said they're going to have to force this on their people. And again, they're going to try they're going to try to bribe us. They're going to try to trick us into doing it. But if that's not the case, then they will try to force it upon us. So everybody needs to be paying attention when they try to stick this in a bill for Congress. You have to say no. And you also have to be protecting yourself that if it does go through, 
what are different ways that if I want to go buy something, how am I going to barter or, you know, work throughout the system? Because, you know, I may say something that goes against, you know, whoever it is who's in charge that day, and I might not be able to live like we would expect to live as an American. That's horrifying. Mm. So we're talking about basically not owning, you're not even owning your own currency. You're, you're, so even when it's your currency, you're still not in control of your own currency. Right. So if you earn money and you yeah. decide to keep it in a form factor of dollars, which as we've said, isn't the best store of value because it's been depreciated and debased over time in the U.S. and it doesn't buy what it used to on a relative basis has been considered generally safe. You not need to put that into something else because those dollars you might not have the free access to anymore. That's yeah, that's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of issues regarding um you know, how global, uh, you know, global power is uh, dispersed. But, you know, you brought up um, one of the things, uh, look, mo pretty much every billionaire with maybe a couple of exceptions is really, really bad. I personally believe that our worst billionaire is Bill Gates. Uh, I have many reasons for that, uh, not the least of which is the fact that the man is buying up hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of land. Why would he do that? And what would his motive be? Maybe he just wants to help us and he cares so much about enriching the land and the soil for us. Yeah, that's not why. No, I, I don't think so. Uh, but obviously, as we turn the page, uh, the Netherlands, while having massive farmer protests, is working with the WEF as part of the Food Action Alliance, among other endeavors to reshape the production and consumption of food. Now, of course, that ties in directly with why is Bill Gates, among other people, buying up so much land, not just here, but obviously in Africa and other parts of the world, uh, to basically control the food supply. Uh, the soil, yep. as, we, as you know, you've done shows before regarding uh, the issues there and the health of the soil. Oh, yeah. No, he wants to. Happen. Well, him and Monsanto are like arm in arm, want to basically control the world's food supply. That's what I think. Uh, can you talk about the World Economic Forum briefly and just how devastating that organization is and the fact that. They go to the, the corporate media go because of they're funded by them, obviously, but they go to such great lengths to kind of skirt the issue about whether or not what they're doing and the whole purpose of the WEF is to basically control the world. Um, that is the main purpose of it. Yeah. And we are. It's I mean, not you want to get you want to talk about being called a conspiracy nut. Even uttering words like this is considered complete blasphemy. But I think the cat's out of the bag at this point. I think is most that, people. Uh, wait, wait. You're saying that it, the idea that the World Economic Forum is trying to control the world is a conspiracy theory? Yes. <laughs> I just thought said. that was just an understanding. No, it's definitely an understanding now where they can't hide it anymore. Are, I always thought that. What was ever the point of it, if not that? Oh, so, not so yeah. Yeah. So, so, first of all, the title of the book actually comes from the World Economic Forum. So, You Will Own Nothing comes from their eight predictions for 2030, which came from input from the Global Future Councils. And the number one prediction was you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, 
which as somebody who's, you know, studies wealth creation, I can tell you that wealth comes from owning things and particularly assets that hold their value or can appreciate in value. So you have this organization, which is littered with the elite of the elite, the political elite, the business elite, anybody else who's influential is part of this non-governmental organization that's run by a guy who literally looks like he was cast as a Bond villain. Like you couldn't even make this up as you try, Klaus Schwab. And Mm -hmm. he has been trying since 1971 to get this idea of stakeholder capitalism and stakeholders um, kind of put out into the world. And he has, I mean, I give the guy credit for persistence. You know, he's been repackaging it and redoing it over and over again. Now, I think that what happened with the WEF, because I'm going to just say I was a WEF useful idiot for a hot minute as well is that they get all of these people and they invite them to fancy events. I was invited when I first started on the internet doing some like Twitter, you know, blogging influencer stuff to come see an event in New York. And it was pretty normal. And there were, you know, people who had best-selling books talking about concepts. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, that sounds great. But at its core, the, if you hear the word reshaping, transforming, reimagining, like anything that's working just fine that they're trying to somehow completely change, it's got this group in the middle. And when you talk about it not being a conspiracy theory, Peter, it's not. I mean, the video that I talked about is not only out there in the open but there are multiple videos that have the same kinds of things and articles that you can kind of trace the same ideas, just repackaged. Um, and, you know, you've got all of these really big people who are there. And I don't think they're all there for nefarious reasons. I really think that a lot of them just see it as opportunities to connect with other high level people and to be seen as important and to be seen as thought leaders. And then they become the useful idiots, the one who are going to to serve man, right? And they take these ideas back into the corporate world and into the governments. There is a very famous video with the WEF um, that with Klaus Schwab, he was at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government talking about how he penetrates the cabinets and about all the people that he knows that have been associated with the World Economic Forum and shaped as part of their Young Global Leaders program that are in these places. And so they're doing everything they can to take these ideas, which are in many cases nuttier than a jar of peanut butter, and frankly, in many cases, nefarious and and destructive, and find these people to carry them back often not realizing what they're doing. And again, when you say conspiracy, like if their name just popped up a couple times, you would be like, eh. But when I was doing my research, like anything that we're talking about here, like the same names just popped up over and over again. And it's the WEF and it's the United Nations and it's BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world. Like at some point, it's no longer a coincidence. Like I believe in coincidences. I'll give you like a little bit of generosity. But like when it happens over and over again, that's not a coincidence and it's not a conspiracy either. And so that's why this is so dangerous because these are the people, and this is really the thesis of the book, 
that in some ways they're kind of moving us towards a new world order, but at a minimum, they just see that it's happening naturally. Like we can't, this is a historical style. They're, they're like Peter, they study history, they know it's happening. So they're like, okay, well, we could just like hope this works out for us. Or we could like try to control this and make sure that us and our buddies come up on top and that we own everything and screw everybody else. They'll just own nothing. Or maybe we'll get them to buy into it. You know, that Peter keeps quoting the, the you, will, you will be happy part of this. They need you to believe that you're going to be happy owning nothing. And throughout history, anybody who's owned nothing has been unfree and very, very miserable if they happen to live. So this is one of the big reasons why. Technology is our greatest asset and it's our greatest detriment at the same time because people have become cognitively dependent on their technology. Oh, people are so stupid now. Which, and by the way, they don't own and is rented to them or licensed to them as a subscription or a service, training exactly. them for non-ownership and letting the big companies collect rents in the process. You also notice that, um, yes. you know, being involved in the political world, you know, everyone thinks that everyone's paying attention and I got a thousand likes on this story. But what you eventually discover after just being in it for a little while is that it's the same people. It's the same people in the same regions and doing the same nonsense and nothing is ever you're not able to get outside that bubble. And so when you do things like run for Congress, for example, and you go out and meet people in the real world, they don't know about any of this stuff. Frankly, they don't really have the time to even focus on it. Paying bills, keeping your head above water, you know, those things come as a top priority, even though I think most people would like to be informed about these things. And then, of course, we have the problem of being on teams, the red team versus the blue team, the liberals versus the conservatives. In the grand scheme of things, it means almost nothing. Right. It really doesn't. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to empower people with this knowledge, because, again, a lot of it they can't wrap their head around it because it's super difficult to understand what's happening here and to connect the dots without sounding like a crazy person. And frankly, a lot of the people who surface some of this are crazy. So I think it's important to have discussions that are well-sourced, that are based in you know facts and logic to let people get empowered. And there's so much going on here. We didn't even, so, so this is exactly what happens. Like there's so much being thrown at us from every direction. We didn't even address the fact that now uh, like 2% of the land in the United States is owned by a hundred people. And hmm. yes, you have these same cast of characters that are buying up food. Um, you know, the government's taking farmland out of commission. Small farmers cannot afford farms anymore. Oh, no. them to, to corporations yeah. because they're asked. They're asset rich, but cash poor. All of these issues, if you control the food supply, you control the people. And so the fact that you've got the WEF in the Netherlands oh. doing this, and they are one of the huge agriculture centers in Europe, you have this happening here. And by the way, guys, it's not just food, but it's also water. Water. And one of the stories I'm not going to, I'll leave you a little something, but there's a very unique entity who decided to get very involved in buying up some land for the water rights. So I'll leave that as a little bit of a, like, oh my God, I can't believe this. But this is this is what's happening. And the Wall Street folks are looking to financialize water and move oh, yeah. it to, quote unquote, its highest and best use, which is what they decide that happens to be. And so again, these are all things that we really need, I know I know we've got a lot going on, we're trying to put food on the table, but we have to be paying attention because oh, yeah. like this is the core of being yeah. able to live and to have freedom. 
and like that, I, like that in and of itself is just another thing that completely blows my mind. We got we have a lot. It, to you know what? It's it's capitalism over imploding in itself to the point where it is only able to benefit a handful of people because it like has eaten itself. You know, the idea of privatizing and owning water um, is not new for us in Florida. You know, we have all of the springs up in northern part of the state that have been a huge source of there has been so many policy issues and legislative problems and lawsuits and so many things regarding ownership of the water. And it isn't just Nestle, but that is one of the bigger um, problems uh, is Nestle. They, we give them our water and they sell it back to us essentially. (sighs) This has been happening for a really long time here. And I know that, that, but when I see people like Bill Gates and them doing that, it is no doubt to me. It's like the movie, the Lorax, not the book, the movie where he owns the air and he sells it back to them because he had gotten rid of all the trees. This is kind of what's happening with our other resources. It's not with air, but that's obviously extreme. This is everything. It's our technology. It's our housing. It's our food, whatever. They want to take everything in your life and rent it back to you. That's the thing. You will own nothing. But it isn't. It's not the government. It's the corporations working through the government to get it done. Right. Like I would say, I would say it's the elite circle. So it's the kind of government fed big business elite that's all kind of coming together with these bad actors. So, um, yeah, it's not a good situation. No, no. I mean, look, it's like any whether it's at the local level, the city level, the state level or at the federal level. Most of these problems that we have, they're easily correctable. There are people who think that we can't fix the problems like if if we the problem we, is greed well of course greed is that's a human nature you, you can't like yeah. you're not you're not going to be able to no you have to work in a system that leverages that because that's a basic go, going to try to get power and try you know try to be greedy is an essential component so you have to work within a system that yeah. recognizes that versus one that thinks that you can like just change that. <laughs> well, that's why you can't let it run amok. That's why it's like the capitalism needs to be somewhat constrained by different things. No, so it's to not be, be in the hands of a at, few at people. At the point of where it is right now, it needs to be heavily constrained. And the most, it, the best examples are the countries in the world that utilize the hybrid system. You can't succeed with capitalism unless there is socialism and vice versa. The people who are saying, let's just go to a socialist system, the human spirit will not permit to basically be capped, to basically be told you can only have this, you can only have that and take it even further. I mean, we know people on the left that want communism and I can't, you know, I mean, look, it is what it is. There are people who want to just basically live in a world where you're told what job you can have. But we think certain things might not be best as for profit industries. 100%. And so but, if you but so so this is where I think and and obviously it's super complex. Yeah. The realities of the greed and the power are also pervasive in the government system. Oh, and true. so I would offer up that if the government didn't have the power to tip the scales and to create these issues, then we you wouldn't have the ability for the cronies to benefit from them. And there would there would there would just be the natural merit-based free market capitalism. So 
I, I think there's, and again, there are certain things we're going to agree on. Obviously, like water should not be financialized. It's infrastructure. That's a basic thing the government should do. Sure. But that's, you know, I, I think that's like not necessarily what I would consider to be socialism. I think that's, you know, kind of part of the- No, it's infrastructure. It's, it's yeah. what, how should we have collective resources? That's what we're talking about. It's the how to collectively use resources. And for anyone that wants to participate in society, that's just how it works. Otherwise you could go have an island, go have survivor, go be really off grid. You don't have to participate in libraries and roads and hospitals and schools. You could go off somewhere, go off grid. They have people in Appalachia that just live off grid. Are- but the rest of us who want infrastructure do want those things. Yeah. yeah. And, I th- and I think the important thing for this discussion, too, is to realize that in many cases, many of these technology companies have become infrastructure. You know, your, your set smartphone has replaced your actual telephone. Oh, yeah. There absolutely. are only two companies that control 99% of the mobile operating systems. Like, that's not capitalism. Like, there is no free monopoly. There is no other it's thing. monopoly. So yes. we have to treat that as infrastructure. And I think this is where like, you know, I I think folks like me and folks like you guys with just a a language change or like a a fundamental understanding of the concepts and not getting so hung up about the labels probably are really close together on coming up with the solutions. Yeah. Well, we definitely agree with the, the big corporations eating up all other opportunities for other people to come in. And that is totally being subsidized. It's the big, it's, it's corporatism. Yes. Cronyism. It is. And and, and as you guys know, we talked about this in my last book, right? So this was like a whole, there's a whole thing. So. Well, there's a reason why, if you look at the odyssey, that was the 2015, 2016 presidential election, there were the crowds that Bernie got. There were the crowds that Trump got. And that's all that mattered. If you looked at any other candidate that ran, whether, there was it, was nobody. Then, whether it was in 2020, there was it's nobody. the same thing. No one is there. And yeah. yet, whenever Trump would acknowledge that Bernie's really smart on trade, he totally gets his trade. And it's like they yeah, were on the same when, page when with they that. were talking about the real core economic issues of the day when Bernie because Bernie ran two different campaigns, 2016 and 2020 yeah. were two different races. His 2016 campaign was absolutely spectacular. What he he was not willing to go where he needed to go regarding the rigging of the primary. And ultimately, in 2020, he decided I got to get along with the normie Dems and cave to their nonsense like with Russia. Instead of just trusting his gut and saying, you know what, it worked for me in 2016. Everybody knows me now. I'm going to run on these issues. I'm not going to spend my entire effing campaign bashing Trump because that doesn't work. You know, you got to focus on the things that most people are acknowledging. You know, everyone is wondering, how the hell is Donald Trump so popular? How is it that he's going to win again? Yeah. How is it that he doesn't really care about these things? It's like, you know what? It's going to win again. Whether he cares or not, he is one of the only people saying, the game is rigged. You're totally screwed. And it's like, yeah, we know it. Why that. isn't anybody else saying this? Why is everybody else saying you're nuts? No, we're not nuts at all. But like you said, you're going to have him again, people. You have more people in this country that hate the corrupt D.C. Uh, government bubble than they do somebody like They're Donald sick Trump. Of, you know what it is? Also, the elitism. It's suffocating. And and the left, and when I say left, I mean our partisan left, not the actual left. They come off as so unbelievably sanctimonious. And it's just, it is a real turnoff to people. And I'm noticing a huge amount of people that are not necessarily registering as Republican, 
but definitely not registering as Democrats. So you step, we see a huge increase here. Our Democratic clubs are out registering voters, and yet the majority of voters that they're registering aren't registering as Democrats. And, I, and, and it's like that because you're elitist and sanctimonious and people find it suffocating. And, and by the way, the mainstream media, or we like to call them the corporate press, I think Michael yeah. Wallace is the one who, who coined that phrase, mm-hmm. are doing no favors because they no. will not hold anybody accountable. They also act like, you know, the elitist and we're better than everybody and whatnot. And frankly, half the time they just make crap up that's like easily provable. Go, no, that's not at all what happened. Like, why are you not doing your job? It's um, it's a t- it's a tough state of affairs. But again, conversations like this give me some hope that, hey, like maybe we just need to do some rejiggering and go, you know, we're going to put all this, like you said, Peter, like let's put all this other crap to the side and let's just yeah. like, let's just try to solve a couple foundational things here and set us on the right track because we are on, like it's a fiscal runaway train that we have right now and it is yeah. going to go off the tracks on the current trajectory if we do not get changes. And based on all the things that we've been talking about and other things that, that I cover in the book, um, you know, from an individual standpoint, you know, the middle and the working class are just going to continue to get crushed, eviscerated and go away. And barbelling of a population is a thing. Like we've seen that in many countries, particularly late stages, you know, of countries that are wealthy that are moving in the other direction where you have this, you know, elite class and then you have a bunch of poor people and there's nobody in the middle. And that's not America. That's not the American dream. And that's not what we want to preserve. I mean, I I take this very personally. I came from a blue collar family, you know, my, uh, grandparents and great-grandparents escaped religious persecution, came here with nothing. And, you know, in a couple of generations, I was able to seize that American dream in a way that they would have never, even my dad wouldn't have been able to believe. Yet I see that opportunity slipping away for people who are just, you know, 10 or 20 years younger. And that's just not okay. there's, There's no, there's no other alternative. If we don't fix this, there is no other place that's up and coming that is going to step into this that is going to be a good outcome. And one of the mo- and, and we can close on this note, you know, when you talk about probably the two most recognizable issues on the political left, the environment and healthcare, you know, there is a huge disconnect when you get to the nuance of what the difference is between a full on government takeover versus making it so that it's applicable to basically everybody. And so on the healthcare side, for example, removing the for profit middlemen in between us and our doctors is how you get to a medic, a single payer universal healthcare system. The problem is, is that there are people who truly believe that you can put a cap on how much, let's say, a doctor is capable of making. As far as I'm concerned, if a doctor has a Rolodex that's three months backlog deep and they can make a million dollars a year, that's on them. If they are providing a trade and a service that is worthy of that kind of income, then that's entirely up to them. Cigna, Aetna, United, Blue Cross, and of course, when it comes to mega corporations like Pfizer, Moderna, and the like, they have no reason to exist. They just don't. And well, we subsidize them. That's the yeah. most infuriating thing to me about Big Pharma is that we pay for the research and then they charge us back and rape us because on the back bought, end. Because we pay bought, for it twice. Because they bought the government. Right. No, that's the, that the is problem. where it's hand in glove. Correct. And then on the side of the environment, yeah, they tout the Green New Deal, but at the end of the day, what is the ultimate goal here? The goal is to get off of coal and natural gas. And if you want to be able to do that, you have to be able to incorporate major 
infrastructural property that can give you energy without it having a carbon footprint. And of course, what's the energy source that can do that? Nuclear power. So when we hear people say, you, no, we can't do nuclear because there's been Chernobyl or God knows what, it's like, well, then you don't actually care about getting off of the real energy sources that are killing this planet. So if the goal here is to make that change, then having that meeting of the minds nuance and compromise is very important. But that's why we've got to get away. Yeah. So that's what I was was going to say. So I don't actually believe that fossil fuels are bad or killing the planet. But I do believe that nuclear is better and that we need to have a mix going on and that, you know, it's going to take a long time because, by the way, our planet isn't just us. It's all the emerging countries. And to think that they're not going to, you know, go through and be able to use this and do whatever they need to do. We can do it more cleanly here than they are going to do it in that would be, whatever. You know so. what? That would be a much better argument because of this constant, we're not going to be able to live on the planet in 10 years. What I would say, and which is indisputable, is that because of the excess of use of fossil fuels, especially in parts of the country that do not have either major population centers or very strong financial infrastructure or even politicians that are not bought by the corporate special interests, is contaminated water supply, You know, something as simple as that would be an example of one of the main reasons to get onto clean energy sources is that you don't have to worry about the water that you're drinking. Well, okay, but but you do have to worry about other. So this this is where I think the nuance happens is, yes, you're focused on that thing. But, you know, windmills, you've got them killing birds and you've got, you know, some of these solar panels where you're you're mining for dangerous you know, chemicals that We've are done perfect. whole episodes yeah. about yeah, that not, whole thing. Right, yeah. So I'm not in it, but I'm just saying, so I think there's the nuance. I think that, like you're saying, that the, the point is that everybody's gone to such extremes. If we just say, hey, like, why don't we just start with a mix and try some different things and, and at least, yeah. like, move in a direction Correct. that we could all feel right. good about. But again, they don't want us to do that because the more that we're angry at each other, the more that they can extract fees. And that's what this is all about. Well, we're a a small but mighty channel, but we intend to have (laughs) these types of conversations. It's why we have productive conversations with people like yourself, people like Tim Poole and the like that, you know, do not see eye to eye with the people on the left that we're very friendly with, whether it's somebody like Vosh or Yes, even somebody like Cenk Uger. At the end of the day, these conversations must happen. Uh, there's always the financial incentive of chaos, if you will, because that's what sells in independent media. But for us, it is about the mission, and the mission is transforming politics into service. I believe that your mission is very similar. And even though we may not see eye to eye on everything, that's not that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that these core principles that we're fighting for very much so in your book, I think lead will lead us to a much brighter future if we recognize that we need each other. And no, even I agree. if we do have this discourse. And that's, this is why we've been longtime friends and I appreciate you guys and appreciate having these conversations. And as I said, not everyone may take every piece of, you know, information yeah. that I put out there and have it serve them. But I guarantee you, some of it will, it probably a lot will. And at the end of the day, I just want to see people be able to live the American dream and have that freedom and that opportunity to, you know, do whatever it is that you want to do and however you define that success. And that's going away for all of us. It's not just, you know, one of us or some of us, it's all of us. And and we have to preserve it because there isn't an alternative. So I appreciate you guys. Um, I hope people 
will go and say, buy the hard copy of do you have, own something. <laughs> Carol, do you have a website that people can go to to either pre-order or where you so would recommend? Go to your favorite place. If you want to do rankings, it's Amazon. If you want to support a business, it's bookshop.org. Books, I don't really care. But what I will tell you is I'm here for special bonuses. So if you pre-order it now, you can go to carolroth.com slash pre-order and you can get an autograph as a bonus as well as some physical metal. I have uh, a sponsor, Goldline, who's giving people some actual metal so that, again, trying to build up something that you own. So once you do the pre-order, if you get a hard copy, you upload your receipt, and then we'll fulfill all of that once the, the book Very is cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you for coming Thank on. You. You really, uh, you do it well. Guys, uh, if you have the opportunity, make sure you get a copy of You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back by our friend Carol Roth. Coming Thank out you in so July. Much. Thank you. And spread the word because, again, you know, we empower people with the knowledge. We'll find a way to come together on some of these issues, but we can't do it if we don't know what we're talking about. So, Absolutely. Thank you, Carol. All right. Thank you, guys. So good to see you. Have Bye. a great day. We'll own everything, guys. The thing about with her, I feel like we don't necessarily agree on um, policy, but what we agree on is that a handful of people shouldn't own everything at the expense of everyone else. And that's fundamentally what we do agree on with her is that that in and of itself is not okay. How we fix that is where we don't necessarily agree with I her. think we're going to get I think we're going to get them I think we're going to get them on healthcare. I think we're close. I think we're a lot closer than people think. And the fact is um, right now I'm worried about my bodily autonomy. Yeah. Well, that's part of it. And <laughs> well, one would think that that was part of healthcare and part of just come, personal privacy. It's going to come from two the, the two biggest obstacles right now in terms of really building the momentum towards healthcare on the left. Number one is planned parenthood. They are a special interest group like the conservative coalition or whatever, what do they call themselves? The Christian coalition. Anyway, point being is that they're a organization that makes millions upon millions of dollars every year to basically tell you that if you want to protect your right to choose, you have to go through us, but you know, having universal health care? No, 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 no. Because then well, it to exist. They, they are definitely um, have lobbied against single payer, but they do so many good things at a grassroots level for so many people. So I am very, very conflicted about that with them. Thanks I know they, they, they save people's lives by making sure. things accessible and available that would otherwise not be. So I, I like that. And the people that work for Planned Parenthood, you're on the ground people that work for them are some of like the most dedicated people. What you're talking about is at the federal lobbying level, the stuff that they're doing. And that is like any other organization at the top. The people that are affiliated with Planned Parenthood and the Planned Parenthood affiliates that are going to be out busting ass on our ballot initiative for abortion rights, um, they're on our team. The people that work for Planned Parenthood and the people that work at Planned Parenthood, they're on our team. The people at the top of them that is lobbying in the, against single payer, that's not our team. Well, that's, that's also, what I'd like well, to that's delineate. That's also very true. Uh, that is very true 
when it comes to labor, particularly labor unions, where the rank and file is completely right. different from the leadership. It's the same thing. So like, just be careful when we say things about Planned Parenthood, because as an organization, the fact that they do get support has saved lives for people. Like I have friends that would have been so screwed if it weren't having Planned Parenthood growing up. So it's, it's, it is a very important on the ground organization that we've, I mean, I can't, I am a supporter of that, but at, in terms of supporting it, like national, financial, whatever, they are not necessarily on our team. Yeah. And I think that we have to recognize if we're going to, you know, we've worked hard, as I like to say, but now we need to work smart. And if the goal here is to bring about the type of systemic change that we desperately need, much as Carol was alluding to, yes, ownership is the best thing that you can do for yourself. We have a couple of very good friends that are from down here that lived in a very rough part of town and they have left the state and they now own and they are doing exceptionally well and very happy for them. They're and they would tell land you, they would tell you the same thing, tell you the exact same thing. And peace of mind. There's a lot of benefit that comes with that. I tell anybody, if you're looking for the answer to why real estate makes sense, it's that mm. it really doesn't matter how small or big a property you own. As long as you own something, you have equity, you have name and purpose. Now, of course, there are different circumstances that can change that. But I just want a lot in a camper. Mm. And that's, that's and for some people, that is everything. that's all I want. I don't want very much at all. I really don't. I think that the conversation we have with Carol is, is the same conversation we have with a lot of people when it comes to universal health care. Is there a concern, as is many, is this whole idea that the government will simply take it over? She, yeah. And that they will do the price gouging and the death panels and all the crazy things that private insurance and big pharma pay hundreds of millions of dollars every year to lobby Capitol Hill government to convince you that you don't actually need health care, that you need this private system that provides no added benefit whatsoever to your health, to the health care. Not just that, but it doesn't even do the job you're paying it to do. Not at all. It's just it's a, really not it's just a crooked system. Yeah. But we have proof all over the world that these systems work. Now, is the best example to be given, you know, Cuba, for example, or China, even though they have universal health care? No. But there are plenty of other examples of countries that have universal health care, that have a free market system, and they do just fine. In fact, they do exceptionally fine. France is probably the best system to model after. You could even make the argument that despite all of the problems it's been dealing with, that the NHS in the UK is still eons better than what we have here in the States. Um, I'd say pretty much anywhere in the European Union. Um, and I say that because I've said it before. I have a friend that I grew up with who lived in Spain and had both birthed, I think, two of her children there and one here or one there and two here. And the entire process from start to finish in terms of having a baby medically and emotionally, like how it's treated afterwards, all of that. It was so much better for her there. And it wasn't having to do with high-end stuff. In fact, her room, there, there wasn't a room. Like when you were in the maternity ward there, it was like a kind of a common room with multiple people, which nobody here would dare have. And yet she got better care overall taken of her in the whole long term of everything. It just wasn't like the fancy um it just didn't appear as it was, but yet she got better care there. My father interesting. took a trip to Switzerland years ago, and 
he was, uh, unfortunately, um, the big difference between Germany and France is that Germany does teach English as a second language. France does not. And so where he got injured, he ended up in a hospital where it was French speaking and he, he had, there was, there was a big communication barrier. They eventually were able to bring in a German doctor that was able to communicate with him. So that helped a lot. But my father was in the hospital for three weeks. Could you imagine what a hospital stay in the United States would cost three weeks? Oh, you, hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. money you can't even begin to comprehend. But because this happened in Switzerland, it cost him nothing because the system is designed to benefit you, not screw you, which is what we have here. And so overwhelmingly, maybe that is the law. And yeah, they pay more taxes, by the way. They do. But may, but their taxes are actually beneficial. Yeah. Our taxes are not. Well, that's like in Scandinavia. Like mm-hmm. the Finnish people pay very high taxes, but they have a really high quality of life. They have very good economics. So the very amount, low the, unemployment, very they don't even they don't have a minimum wage. They don't need a minimum wage. They have the highest standard of living in terms of happiness in they do. And well, and also very strong labor unions. Very so that's true. why they don't have a they don't need a minimum wage. They don't. And they have a free market. I mean, look, my goal would be for us to not have to have a minimum wage or a living wage. Sure. My goal would be that have we a trade. Ha, well, not just that, but that we just have this decency to treat everybody as if their job has value and that everybody 100%. putting in a full time work week deserves to have shelter, food, education, health care, like basic things. And if we would all just agree on that, that would be fine. We wouldn't need like it's just uh, it's just pathetic to me that you even have to codify like dignity. But you do. Maybe the one silver lining to what actually transpired over the course of COVID is that it got enough people to really question what is the purpose of private insurance and especially the purpose of big pharma. And what you have learned over the course of the last three years is that there is no purpose. It's a for-profit health system. We are the only developed nation in the world that has it. The other two countries I didn't mention that has exceptional health care is Japan and Australia. So it really doesn't matter where you go around the world. Japan does a lot of things good. They do. Yeah. Japan is also an extremely homogenous nation that yeah. does not take they you want to talk when people complain about the strict rules we have when it comes to immigration, you don't know Jack Squat if you want to see what real no, it's immigration true. is like. They it's true. Reese has a friend who wants to move there and he's gonna be teaching English and all that, but like the hoops and stuff you have to jump through. It's like they That's because the Japanese actually demand excellence of their citizenry. That's the reason why they're so far ahead of us in so many different things, because they actually expect you to be a functioning and effective member of society. Well, again, but the key word is society. They have they have a society. They have a society, but they have very much uh, in their culture a care for the collective. And they also have a respect of like generational respect and how they treat people. Um, Just everything is different there. But it's. really a matter of just prioritizing the nature of collective. They actually see that as, a, as an entity. I agree. We don't have that here. It's everything is individualism. You're absolutely right, Carney. And of course, politicians are crashing the economy while private equity vultures swoop down. But remember, these guys are in bed together. Right. I'm they're investing gonna, in it. I'm not going to cover the story, but I will assure you that something was passed along to us today about a project that is immensely corrupt. That's not even in the state of Florida that somehow, some way our congresswoman is involved in. It doesn't surprise me. It just doesn't end. So 
this is 100% correct. Uh, but one of the things, and this is the closing story, and of course, Jen, you're going to obviously want to talk about Nina Turner. I Tina, t- Tina Turner, God damn it. Nina's, Nina's here. She's fine. Uh, but there was a very interesting story that popped up the other day, and this is not the first time that it happened. Now, of course, there isn't a modern story because this is only flashed across on Twitter. This didn't actually get picked up by news. Not surprisingly, why would it? It doesn't make the Democratic Party look good. But for those of you who- Few things do. For those of you who are probably aware of Ice Cube, he is a- I really don't know very much about I mean, I know who he is. He's a rapper. Yeah. Uh, he I mean, was an actor in one of the best- If you want to talk about a movie, if you want to know what urban plighted living is really like in the ghetto, uh, if you haven't seen the movie Boys in the Hood, I would highly recommend it. Um, he has a very prominent role in that film. I know Ice T more than Ice Cube. Well, Ice Cube is as important as Ice Tea. Ice, ice Tea, tea you, can't have ice, you can't have Ice Tea without an Ice Cube. So there you go. So basically, what Mr. Cube has been saying is that the black community should exit in mass from the Democratic Party. Now, why would he say that? The reason he's saying it is because, in spite of all the lies and all the things that have happened since the mid 60s, when LBJ said, I'll have the you-know-what's eating out of the palm of the Democratic Party's hands for the next 200 years by passing civil rights legislation and passing the Voting Rights Act, this is ostensibly what you've gotten, situations that have only gotten worse. Now, there are many reasons why that is the case, and not one is just saying that the Democratic Party has failed. The Republican Party, of course, has failed as well. Ice Cube was not out there advocating for people to leave the Democratic Party in mass and join the Republican Party. But there are gatekeepers within the Democratic Party who are basically telling him to get lost. He is hurting their community. Well, I don't know how much more hurt you can possibly be, but I think it's fair to say that the policies that we advocate for on our channel are the type of policies that would probably benefit communities of color that are suffering the most in this nation whether it is a living wage, labor organizing unionization, universal health care, ending the wars, criminal justice reform. I don't know about you, but I think that those things are pretty damn significant. And all the Democrats ever do is promise and break promises. Yeah. Well, they're, they're not really designed to do anything else anymore. That's, that's all they are is mick resistance. That's not real. Yeah. And so, of course, when Joe Biden came out during his interview, and remember, Ice Cube and Charlemagne the God are very friendly. So when Joe Biden gave that late election interview on The Breakfast Club saying, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. That's when Ice-T was like, F this it. Damn it, Jen. Ice Cube. (laughs) Ice Cube. Well, I can tell the difference, damn it. Ice Cube said... Why even vote for the Democrats? This is BS. Why would you, if you think that you could get away, and it's not just anybody, it's Joe Biden, it's Jim Crow Joe. I want to sit him down with uh, Jim Clyburn and see how that conversation would go as to what they're doing now in terms of pulling this shit with the primaries and how you have people like Clyburn that are basically saying, that the black vote in South Carolina is enough basically that to, to win the day, that yeah. he'll be able to bring that for him. Well, the thing you can that count I, on that. 
the thing that I also found very interesting and something that we hear constantly from the conservative right is that if you look at all of the very blue areas of the United States, which typically are major cityscapes, and you look at the problems that exist within those cities, whether it's crime, whether it's famine, whether it's inequality, cost of living, redlining, blockbusting, all of those things, the argument is always, well, these are Democratic-run cities, but the argument's that, well, the Republicans are no better. Oh, you're just a Republican now. These cities are being held down because of the blah, 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 blah. But then Ice Cube comes out and says the same thing, and now Ish is hitting the fan. And he's not wrong. There's a reason why the 2016 primary between Bernie and Hillary was so telling, because if you looked at the maps of where the voting broke down, Michigan and Wisconsin are two great examples. Two states that Hillary lost, two states that Bernie won, and ultimately Trump, Trump won. won. What you will find is that the biggest reason that Bernie was able to win Michigan is because the people of Flint went against the Democratic Party establishment and backed him instead of Hillary. That was the, that was the defining difference in Michigan. And the same thing ultimately happened in the state of Wisconsin. Now, Hillary still got Detroit, much like she still got Milwaukee, but the city of Madison went with Bernie Sanders. All too often, these major cities, especially the cities that are predominantly black, will always be in the Democratic establishment stranglehold. But when a Democratic populist like Bernie Sanders comes along, that's dangerous because that's waking people up to the realities of the broken system. And rather than listen, for example, to what Ice Cube is saying, and thinking, you know what, maybe he's right. You know, maybe we do need to demand more instead of just saying we better vote for the Democrat, otherwise the Republicans are going to take over. Did you ever stop to think that maybe they're in it together, that maybe what they're doing is actually screwing all of us, but especially communities of color that are struggling every day? That's the bottom line. That's what we were talking about before with Carol about how the system is completely broken, excuse me, because at, at the end of the day, corporate special interests have captured our government and they have really captured the Democratic Party. That's not to say that they haven't captured the Republican Party. They certainly have. But I think we can both agree that the solution here is a completely different system than what we have right now, because this one sure as hell ain't working. And if there ever was an opportunity for as I said earlier on status quo, if there ever was an opportunity for a Jesse Ventura or a Mark Cuban to run for president, this is it. Please do so. Right now. Please. Think about it. If our, Save us, Obi-Wan. And, 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 if, and I'm pointing the finger at you, Jesse Ventura, and at you, Mark Cuban. If RFK, who's as pretty anti-vax, can in the Democratic primary already get polling up to 20% in many instances, what in the hell do you think will happen if you got into the race? 
well, they know what would happen. And Jesse knows what would happen. And again, he will get in the race if somebody would give him ballot access. Well, it sure as hell ain't going to be the no labels party. I can assure you of that. No. Well, the no labels party is not a friend of mine. Definitely not. That is not the solution. Can, I don't know what is going on with I you. Had to, I had to adjust my shoe. But you're on. like. <laughs> it happens. Oh, my God. Uh, I disagree off the rails. I think Ventura is very serious, but I also think at his age, he's only going to do this if he absolutely is not. If the, he's only going to do it if it's serious. He's not going to do he it. Said if he said he has to, you have yeah. to have a, he has to have a party that has the infrastructure in place and ballot access. You know, yeah. and that's just the way it is. Yeah. That's realistic. Um, and people who get into it without that are they're the ones who are not serious. That's the definition of not being serious. I feel, um, but but the one thing that I thought was very interesting regarding Ice Cube, and we'll, we'll leave it here. Uh, if you look at the responses that, you know, the quote tweets about the fact that he said, leave the Democratic Party, that's exactly what he said. That's all. That's the only words he used, leave the Democratic Party. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people who were commenting that were black agreed with him. And the people who were not agreeing with him were people that, and again, I'm, you know, we're not from their community. There is certain, there are certain elements that are there that only members of their own community can deal with or identify. But it seemed to me that there's like, there, there, there's a, there is this major disconnect between the people who can see straight and the people who can't. And being able to see straight, even though the people who are not seeing straight know deep down that something's wrong and something's there and they really should be questioning what's in front of them, no matter how much they try to scream fascism to you day in and day out, you have to know that the system's broken and that at some point, collectively, the working class of this country must unite. History has proven it time and again, and we're there. Will we ever get our act together to do something about it is the question. No. <laughs> you wanted to? Um, yeah, I did want to make a comment on Tina Turner. Um, I, you know, I saw that today pretty like, I guess this afternoon that Tina Turner died. And so I started reminiscing because I've always really liked her and started looking back at um, like some of her more amazing performances. And so I just thought that I would share this because if you guys have not seen, you've got to stop. I'm done. Um, if you guys haven't seen any part of her performance of, in 2000 at Wembley Stadium, and this is one of the coolest things I've seen. And now I've seen basically every rendition of her doing Proud Mary. I mean, she's just, she's the shit. That's the one. It's just so good. And you can forward like partially in and do it because really it's, we don't need to watch like the whole thing of it because, but she's just, just so good here. Keep, I'll, I'll, I'll do it here. Just, I'll do it. But, um, I just think just so you guys get a general idea. All right. So you could share it and play that if I don't know if you like, just play. And so you guys, this is really cool, guys. So we Oh, my. 
She's just such the bomb, right? Like just such the bomb. And for anybody who came on, like while that was playing, the reason I love that performance so much, well, first of all, if you haven't ever seen one of her older performances where she does Proud Mary when it's with Ike, even though it's kind of bittersweet to watch those just given him, but um, just to see her at that age is phenomenal. But what's so amazing about that Wembley Stadium concert in 2000, she was 60 years old, 60 years old. Like, I find that just, especially now at 52, like looking at that, I'm like that level of energy in that level of heels with those young girls. First of all, any woman 60 years old that will get dressed like that and dance next to like a troop of 20 year olds with their bare midriff showing and bring it. That's some serious confidence right there. Just her crazy cool. She is a legend. Oh. She deserves all of the kudos uh, that she's given. No, the it's only a rise in power. Yes. The only thing that is sad, unfortunately, it was confirmed that she actually was sick for quite some time. Yeah, always, I did. Uh, I, I, I you never want to hear that. that. No. And, you know, but she uh, she leaves quite the legacy. She was an amazing. I love that song, Proud Mary. And of course, I know it from a different reason. Well, you know, it's you not know. it's not her song. No. You know, it's a CCR song. 
But of course, her album, um, what was it called in 84? That, um, Private Dancer. Private Dancer. And of course, What's Love Got to Do With It? It was the number one hit. It was the number one song in America for a while. You know, but, you know, um, she was just one of those people that really um, changed the narrative and changed sort of boundaries um, for women and specifically black women in rock. Yeah. Um, and, and it was real, she really crossed over when she came out with that album. And, you know, I don't, I don't really learn about that. And I think I got that from the movie. That's one of the things I kind of picked up from the movie, just that transition for her to be, um, not just a, a woman, but a black woman in that genre and be able to be so successful. And by the way, there are only a handful of people that could fill up Wembley stadium. Like that's not a common thing to be able to do. It's quite a big deal. So, um, and to be able to do it at that age and just rock it like that. I don't, I can't wear heels like that now. I definitely agree like, with everything that you guys are saying. Carrie, of course, simply the, simply best. the best. That's my favorite song of hers. Uh, her on Oprah also for anybody, if you ever can watch a clip of when she performed um, on the, came on the Oprah Winfrey show and they did it, her, she played simply the best was one of the songs she did. It and was it was a great one. I, and of course, she, and Wilson for me, simply the best is just one of those songs that like when you win the championship, you simply the best. Well, yeah, you are the best. Yeah. So, um, but she was very, very special. She was very, very special. She had some pretty very, solid oh, lives, so give you that. It's 60, no less. Yeah, Crazy. Made 60 the new four. Oh, years, she so really yeah. did. She really did and just broke a lot of barriers. I mean, look, first of all, she rocked out with Mick Jagger. Let me see what Sam had to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sam got himself thrown out of the DeSantis thing tonight. He tried oh. to sneak in with like a group of drag queens. <laughs> He Sam. called me. <laughs> he called me. Oh, that's great, man. I'm sorry. He got I'm, thrown out. I'm he had to leave us alone to Satan. Leave us alone to Satan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right. If you like, but I do work, like that we have a friend that tried to yes. get into a DeSantis uh, conversation with Drag Queen in tow. If you do like our small but mighty channel, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You could become an amazing supporter of our channel and you get the Lulu sticker as an intro. But as I pointed out on Status Coup earlier this evening, if you are so inclined to become a $10 this a month This one is patron, so wrinkled. It's so this, sad. You'll get a not a This is an exclusive want. since the No Labels Party is making a very hard push to get Mansion Parliamentarian. Yes, I'm calling it now. If we were already right on Mansion, we're right on Parliamentarian too. But the problem Mansion is they're going to have, I, I believe legally she'll have to use her real name. Maybe so, but we're just going <laughs> to. I don't think we can go with This is a vintage included so for a $10 a month patron, much like status quo under the United Corporations of America. Oh my God. How Look funny will it be if he actually is a candidate? I think it's possible. I think he's thinking about it. All right, also, but it he, definitely won't be with the parliamentarian. And if you are so inclined <laughs> for a very generous contributor of $25 a month, you get the gen change Jersey. And guys, they, there's not that many of them. Silky smooth. You know, you want to get one. Please sign up. We are getting a new but box of are, these. But if you are so inclined, you can go to cash app. Dollar sign gen change if you don't want to be on the grid. Just want to make a one-time contribution because you really like our channel. Obviously, Better be good to me. Is it, why can't you be good to Yeah, that was a good song too. Yes. She was just the bomb, man. Uh, we are not going to really get into Ron DeSantis' announcement tonight. No, um, no. But I think the whole 
um, con- context of how he did it and the is fact so that it, ridiculous. And the fact that it failed to launch, the fact that it had oh, I didn't such even know a that. glitch that they couldn't even get it started is sort of emblematic it of is. what this campaign is. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going badly. It's going very badly. But as I suggested, again, on Status Quo, and I will suggest here, Ron DeSantis, regardless of what you, Jordan is convinced that Trump is somehow going to get taken down legally. That's what he thinks is going to happen. I don't. I don't think, I don't so, think so. Well, uh, no, I, he might in some ways, but not in a way that's going to preclude him from running. Yes, I agree with that. Remember, Eugene Debs ran for president from prison. Yeah, I, I do think Trump definitely there there very well could be certain legal ramifications, but nothing that's going to keep him from running for office. Definitely agree with that. Um, I definitely think that the one and only path that DeSantis has is regardless of whether his intention is to change up his rhetoric in any capacity as we go forward, he is running this Christian right campaign because he's banking on the idea that he's going to win Iowa and use that as a momentum springboard to actually win the nomination. But can we just for a second, has who that has won Iowa has gone on to win? That's a great point. I'm asking. I don't know the last Because wasn't time. it like Mike Huckabee? Wasn't it like well, the last Ted time. Cruz? Wasn't it like the people that win Iowa I think traditionally in their party don't win. The only time that I could think of in recent history that somebody who actually won the Iowa caucus and went on to win the presidency is Barack Obama. I'm asking in the Republican side. Uh, not anybody that I could think of at the moment. I mean, I that's my point. So it, it might not be a very good strategy to put everything into the state that it doesn't appear that anybody who wins actually wins the presidency. But I think because, of, well, from DeSantis's perspective is not necessarily the wrong one. And, I'll, and I'm saying it for this reason, because if you look at national polling data, Trump is way ahead. And the fact that he is already, the fact that DeSantis is pigeonholing himself in a way that a lot of people do not like, I think is going to only allow him to potentially gain momentum for that purpose because DeSantis's message is essentially the same message as Joe Biden. I'm the only one who can beat Donald Trump. Yeah. While Ron DeSantis's message is I'm the only one who can beat Joe Biden. If you think that that will not work, especially with the older voter, it will work. I, the how problem much is how he's going too far to the right. That's true. Now, how much will it work is the question. And I think he, Ron DeSantis, we would agree, has absolutely jumped the shark. Yeah. No two ways. Apart. Yeah. I, you know what? The, the six-week abortion signing for me was that's the symbol of that he went too far in a way that is just not winnable. And it's, right now, when I look at where he put himself, he's somewhere in the Mike Pence realm. And if you're going to be over there, you're not going to get any more. That's a very small niche of people. He really angered a lot of people. Meanwhile, what has happened is Trump's numbers have gone very far up and DeSantis's numbers have been dropping steadily. And I will say this. From Donald Trump's perspective, this is probably the best thing that could have happened to him because he thought he was going to have he was going to have the ability to cruise to the nomination and basically run what, a four or five month campaign? Now he really has to fight for it. Now he's probably still going to get it, most likely. But he is going to be so much more battle tested and prepared than Joe Biden would have ever been. And these, of course, were not normal circumstances when Biden won in the first place. I just, I don't see how he can win again. 
I, I do not see. No, I don't see, how, I don't see how Joe can win again. No. The state that also people are not talking about that is going to be in play, I believe, in Nevada. 24. Well, no, actually, Virginia. And the reason why I believe Virginia is going to be in play is because Glenn Youngkin is the is the governor. And I do think that that holds sway. I think that that does matter. And that is a state that the Democrats cannot afford to lose because it's very likely that the Republicans are going to at least pick up Georgia and very likely they could pick up Arizona. I remember a time when Virginia was red, super red. But when what, did I mean, at what election? All, did, the, all the liberals started moving to the northern suburbs. They moved out of D.C. Uh, and Maryland because That's what happened because I mean, Virginia traditionally was always red. Yes. And so when still, was it when did it not go red? The first time that the Republic, the first time that the Democrats won Virginia like Obama? was no, Obama, 2008. That was the first time. And that was the first time in, geez, I guess. Because if Virginia is trending blue, my guess is it's a pretty purpley blue. Uh, yeah. because that's when you're talking about the type of Democrats that have moved there, you're talking about Democrats that are wealthy people. Well, not you're only, not talking about hardworking middle class. Well, that is true. Well, that's people. why it's always a well, that's a state that Hillary beat Bernie. And that would be Biden red. beat Bernie like, like, yeah. like two out of three. Like that's it was what pretty, I, would, I would think that. Yeah. And so the state very much with the exception of Richmond and obviously the very tippy top of the state that borders Washington, D.C., it is a very red state. But because the population has grown so exponentially in that area, it has become a lean blue purple state. Now the question is going to become because the state's governorship has flipped back to the GOP, and especially because Glenn Youngkin is a he's pretty popular in that state. Is that going to play a role? I believe it will. Uh, I also believe that the Democrats have committed a completely unnecessary error by not allowing New Hampshire to be the first in the nation. That is going to give a lot of cannon fodder to the GOP. Oh, they have so angered New Hampshire. And that's, I know four <laughs> electoral votes may not seem like a lot, it, but it's really eight electoral votes. You're really it's burning bridges. four from one side and giving four to the other side. That's a lot. It's burning bridges too. I, you, you've really pissed off a lot of people up there, I'm just saying. And the, New Hampshire isn't just New Hampshire. Like it is, but it's well, very New just England. New England. Yeah. And, and it has a broader... That's sort the, of well, it's holes and people realize. And, and the thing, I can understand the argument, not even so much so that Iowa is a red state through and through. The Iowa caucus, and granted, I believe that the reason why it has been that way is because the Democratic Party in Iowa is just completely corrupt and that they were bought off to cater to whoever would be the placeholder, whether it was Hillary or obviously the pawn little Mayo Pete, um, in order to screw Bernie Sanders. New Hampshire, for all intents and purposes, is one of the, if not the best run primary state in the nation. To take that away from them, and they have been the first in the nation primary for 70 years. Well, their their constitution dictates when they have to go. Correct. So so they're going when they have to go. They're not going to get bogged down with this. Um, and if you haven't, all Nina did a really good clip. Thank big you, dumb big dumb animal. animal. You finally found your way here. Love it. He contributed to our good friends at Status Quo as well. Nice. Great to see you. So Nina did put out a really good clip. Um, 
I just lost my total train of thought talking about what were we just talking about? About, about how New Hampshire. Oh, right. She did this clip about how Jim Clyburn actually said the silent part out loud. Yes, he did. About oh, that. Yeah. About that. Well, you know, Joe came in fifth there. So, of course, he's going to try to get rid like like literally just putting it all out there um, that it's about him trying to. He said Joe avoiding embarrassment. He said it all out loud as if that's just so OK, because so that's essentially the president saying, oh, I won't do well there. So we're going to take them off out of the mix. Oh, no conflict of interest there. There's nothing yeah, to see real. here. No, it's definitely it's like I can't win there. So I'm not going to go play there. And, that, and, and you know what? And if you think that they're not going to play ads like that in the general election, basically saying the Democrats don't give a damn about New Hampshire. And the truth is, New Hampshire Democrats give a damn about New Hampshire. Oh. Federal Democrats don't give a damn about it. And that's a problem. And that's the big disconnect. Again, the whole thing between rank and file labor union members and union bosses and delegates. It's the same thing. Think about how difficult it's going to be for a lot of strong candidates, much like Jen and I doing our venture to get abortion rights on the ballot for 2024. Do you really think that anybody who's running statewide is going to necessarily be looking to lock arms with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in 2024? No, it's going to hurt them. And that's something that you have to consider. Yeah, it's a net negative. That's the problem. Yeah. So you may think in an area like Southeast Florida, that maybe that might work, but not statewide and not on an issue that's so big. And frankly, I don't think Joe Biden supports a woman's right to choose. He may begrudge I, I, Right. I don't either. I, I think, well, I, I don't think a lot of them actually believe it because it hasn't really affected them. And very wealthy people, these types of laws don't really impact them anyway. I remember that. Actually, when I moved to Texas, it was right after she had been governor. And when I went to a black tie uh, thing for the HRC, came back when HRC I liked was a better organization. Um, she was their keynote person and I got to meet her at that. And she is just cool. First of all, she rode Harleys, which just in an at, at old age, like when she was old, she drove around on Harley. She was just cool. a donor cycle. Yeah. I mean, look, I wouldn't ride one, but I still think it's pretty cool that she rode one. But yeah, no, Ann Richards was a very cool governor. She she was actually decent. I think it's going to still be um, some type of a competitive primary in some regard, because like I said, I do think that DeSantis's plan is to just really lean in as hard as he can for that particular voting block and hope it delivers. And then by extension, continue to use the narrative of inevitability. I'm the one who can win. He can't. He's too toxic. He's blah this, blah that. This will rally the Democrats more than they would against me. It's not a bad argument. No, it wasn't a bad argument until he leveled the playing field by going so far to the right yep. that now he isn't seen as any safer. And I think Trump That's has a problem. lot of advantages at his disposal. I also think that Tim Scott, the senator from, from South Carolina, He's going to have a very interesting run of it. Not that he's going to be any type of a threat, but I do believe that Tim Scott is without question running to be the VP. And while a lot of people are insistent that Trump is going to pick a woman to be his VP, I would not be shocked in the least if Trump picked Tim Scott to be his VP. That would not surprise me. And I think that would be a very powerful ticket, to be honest. So we'll see if that ultimately is what comes to pass. Ron DeSantis 
the more you hear about it, the know more that you'd you be, see I'd it. be interested to see if there was, if he could ever, I'd be curious what woman would be a running mate with him. With I'm No, with Trump. Oh, uh, Carrie Lake. The, the wild card that a lot of people have been talking about, which on the Patrick Bet David podcast, which I'm trying to get Jen on, hopefully we will make it work. Uh, he had on Tulsi Gabbard and she is not opposed to the idea of potentially being a vice presidential candidate. That would be very interesting because I do think that she holds a lot of sway with independent and right-leaning voters that could potentially make a difference. Uh, vice presidential candidate to whom? For Trump? Or to Santa, either oh. one. Oh, how far Tulsi has gone, well, right? That's where she's at. Yeah. Uh, Sam could not have said it better. He was a very modest governor with some good marks on his yes, record. Yes, actually. Up until he figured out that he was going to use the COVID disaster as a launching pad for his presidential run. And the second somebody, listen, it's one thing to run for president. It's another thing to run for president when you think you're actually going to pull it off. And the things that you're willing to do, the sacrifices you're willing to make, like the way that they just opened up the floodgates, the way that DeSantis has been doing pay to play nonstop over the last two years is incredible. It really is. He And it isn't just the culture war stuff. It's everything. He really has jumped the shark oh. in the worst possible way. But but in a way, it's good because it really does bring to so light. Did, so did we, especially when it came to Everglades restoration. Yeah. He was a good governor on the environment. But there is a difference yeah. between being the governor of a state that you basically are the governor of and are going to use it eventually as a springboard to run for the U.S. Senate, which obviously would have been his next move. And yes, I do think that at the end of his term, he would have in 2030 run against Rick Scott, even if he was intending to run again for re-election. He would have been in a primary against Rick Scott. And those two cannot stand each other. So that's like, you know, uh, that but, is really that's like bad and worse. But in the well, at that time, I wouldn't have thought so. But because of the supposed opening that had come before him, his attitude was, oh, I'm going for it. I have the opportunity to be the leader of the free world. And now. Whether Ron well, he went too far for me. I mean, you know, you you start really messing with like, you know, my bodily autonomy and I start to want to, you know, kill people. So, Karina, we're working on it. We haven't uh, we've made we've made a little progress. We're hopeful that it will grow. I happen to have a, a pretty good connection directly to PBD. So we'll see what we might be able to do with it. Gerard, thank you very much. What is PBD that I'm missing? Patrick Bettig. I don't even know who that is. He's a very successful entrepreneur guy. So he does a very successful podcast. Uh, he's a very big Trump supporter. Okay. So, and so what's the connection for us? He's in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, all right. So we will see and We where, want to talk to him. Why? Uh, you because, mean you want to have him come on the show? No, we are you're going to have you go on his show. I would certainly have him on our show. You want me to go on his show? Yeah, on his show where he gets fifteen to 20,000 live but what viewers kind of time. what kind of roasting am I enduring? You're not going on any kind of roasting. There's been other guys that have been on there. Kyle was on there. Uh, 
not a fan of David Pakman in any way, oh, but he was on there. Good God, no. Friend of ours, Sam Cedar, was on there. I do like Sam. Damn, uh, Destiny was on there. So, yeah, I mean, listen, they've they've opened up the door for people that are not on the right. Uh, they don't just bring you on there to, like, you no, know, No, not lynch, at all. That's a real you. conversation, real conversation. Like Tim Pool, very similar, uh-huh. very similar format. So with that said, uh, we are going to make a decision over the next couple of days as to whether or not we're going to do a Saturday live stream or a Monday live stream. Uh, we definitely want to have our good friend Steve Grumbun come on to give us the lowdown on what's going on with the debt ceiling. The decision is going to need to be made by June 1st. So we're going to get to the bottom of that. Uh, our friend Craig Shapiro really wants to come on here and kind of have like a conversation as far as that's concerned. I just don't know that that necessarily needs to have me as part of it. I like the idea of watching the two of them talk about like the debt ceiling. I, I, it's no, just, we'll just, so we could just have, we just have Steve come on. We could just, okay. just have Steve. Uh, because look, there's, there's no point in arguing this. The fact of the matter is we live in a country where working people are screwed and that's who will be screwed by the time the debt ceiling circumstance is over. But it's important to note exactly why that is and who better to explain it than Mr. MMT himself, Mr. Steve. All right. Well, okay. So, cause it's Memorial day weekend. Is that yeah, why you were exactly. thinking? Okay. So you want to do, we can do an afternoon one on Monday. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, most likely we're going to stick with our regular format. Um, we are going to stop by an event on Saturday. Uh, What's the Sam, event Saturday? Uh, the petition drive. It was uh, last week. Uh, we actually, but there is, uh, she wants us to come to Art Walk. I don't know. I don't think I have it in me. Well, count on seeing us on Monday afternoon since it is Memorial Day. <laughs> We're going to go to the Broward Young Republican. Do you want to go to that barbecue? Why All not? Right. So we may go to a red, white, and blue Memorial Day. If there is a day to go to something like that. I got to tell you, if honestly, though, if I had to pick like every time when the the Broward Dems or if the BYD or whatever, if they were having a barbecue, I would never want to go to that. But I would definitely go to the Republican. Sable, this is why we love seeing you on our live stream, because I will tell you that, yes. Yeah. Hackman used to be a very solid Bernie supporter, but then he figured out how to capture that as you call it, shit lib audience, and was ultimately willing to go to places that are wholly disgusting, including suggesting that Juan Guaido should be the president of of Venezuela. And therein, the shark was jumped. There you go. Right there. That was it. That was... That was the moment. Hunter, we are going to do that. And believe it or not, absolutely you be surprised how many of them will actually that's sign why, the petition. That's why I want to go. Yeah. Absolutely. These are the young people. They're, the, this is not what, see, I, again, by the way, if you follow them and or the BYD on social media in any capacity and you were to ask, and I were to ask you who looks more fun to hang out with, I got to tell you. You would be with the Young Republicans Club so fast if you didn't see the red color and you didn't know. We've got a lot of great guests that we're lining up right now. So Who be are we prepared. lining up? Uh, not, we'll talk. I'm not sharing too much, mm, but we cryptic. will definitely have some good stuff coming up for you guys. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Carol Roth. Make sure you like and subscribe. I know that I saw Tom Hartman on the horizon again. Tom is going to be on in, the, in Love July. Tom so yeah, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. So Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Sam, we expect to see you out canvassing with us very soon to uh, get those ballot petitions uh, rocking and rolling. It's going to have some real advantages. Eli said that. Uh, I spoke with him. Okay, great. So 
Great to see you guys. Support the channel if you can. Like and subscribe, share, do all those wonderful things. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. We will see you Monday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.